0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Conservation, a laid-back podcast where we discuss everything from cool animals, conservation, the environment, and what we can do to help. I'm Robert Pike, a field journalist for the Global Conservation Force, and I'm joined by my co-host Mike Veal, a world-renowned rhino conservationist and president of the Global Conservation Force. Welcome to another Podcast episode of Coffee and Conservation. I apologize for the delay in episodes, but we've been busy in the field. Today, I am excited to have a crew member, a friend, and a longtime conservationist joining us on the call, Lauren Lee, who is our GCF Education and Outreach Coordinator. Uh, she works on multiple programs outside of that, though. Um, Lauren, welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Thanks, Mike. Um, it's nice to talk to our listeners on our podcast. Like Mike said, I am the education coordinator for Global Conservation Force, and I have been for a handful of years now. Um, but from the very start, we have focused on educating people here locally in the U.S. and abroad, and it's been great to see how it's been growing so far.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, so, Lauren, you started in 2017 with us, right? hmm correct. Awesome. So... It's been a little bit of time now. It's crazy how fast time flies. Uh, yeah. So today's episode is recording in mid November 2023. So mm-hmm. we're almost going into the 24 mark, which is crazy.
1: <laughs> That's insane. And the projects are still going strong. So it's nice to see that things are holding, even with all the hiccups and obstacles.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. COVID being like the, the nuclear bomb of obstacles. Yeah. Can't hold us down. So. Lauren, give us a little background. Um, where did you grow up? Uh, what brought you to conservation? What inspired you? And what brought you to GCF in a nutshell? I mean, you can you can Oh, you elaborate. have a
1: whole lowdown.
0: OK, you, get your coffee ready. Coffee's ready.
1: How <laughs> I get my coffee ready. Um, <clears throat> OK, so let's start from the very beginning. Um, I was born in Philadelphia and then moved to San Diego. Um, I lived I've lived in San Diego essentially my whole life, so I call it my home base even if I lived abroad, we always come back to San Diego. but there was a little bit of an interruption in my life where we my family and I actually moved to Singapore and we lived abroad and when I was little, you know I was so against it, and a lot of that was was because I wasn't exposed to you know alternatives and what the bigger world can be. As soon as I moved to Singapore, I realized how big the world is and like how much my perspective was going to change. And it was during some really formative years. It was throughout my entire middle school and all throughout high school. And I even stayed there for my last um, senior year on my own with a family friend. So that was like a whole new perspective of being on, on your own and really taking a new lifestyle. Um, after that, I moved to Chicago for college, and I was so focused on going into veterinary medicine. I mean, your wife said that you know how these animal people are. We're so focused on going to veterinary school. Um, cause a lot of the time, at least for myself, I thought that was the only realm where you could work with animals. And I feel like a lot of animal people that are listening probably feel that way. Um, and veterinary sciences is great, but for myself, when I was in college, I'd worked in a vet hospital for a couple of years and was itchy. Like I had this feeling that I wanted to do a little bit more. I wanted to work with bigger animals, do something more um, involved, but I didn't know exactly what I could do. And I happened to work with a vet who was doing a master's program at the San Diego Zoo, um, which I thought was crazy because she was already a veterinarian, but she wanted to, you know, better herself and get to know conservation. And she ended up doing the master's program at the San Diego Zoo, which then inspired me to consider going back to school. And I ended up doing the same master's program which then really inspired me to think about conservation and working with wild animals. And that's where I became really intertwined with the zoo. And I think that's where our stories kind of then intertwine a little bit more.
0: Yeah, Um, absolutely.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I've known Mike for, I don't even know the first time I saw you, but like working at the Safari Park and seeing you in passing for so long, it feels like you've always been there. Um, And in conservation, when I was at the zoo, I started as an educator. It was a role that I never thought that I would, land or find interest in but when opportunities arise and you take it and you take that leap sometimes you develop skills you never you never thought you would have and I was an educator at the San Diego zoo for about six years five to six years which was amazing I got to learn so much about animal behavior reading people empathizing with people um, really honing in my teaching skills and seeing that it was something that I was good at and something that I liked and after that I decided to you know, weave a little bit further into the conservation field and became um, one of the keepers or animal care specialists at the safari park, working with some of the hoofstock and all those large animals. So it was nice to finally take my education, implement it into some of the husbandry and really piece everything together, even from, you know, my veterinary background. So it means more to me having gone through all these like trials and tribulations of like, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? It doesn't mean you failed it just means that you're finding more of your niche and right now I feel like where I'm at with GCF and conservation where I'm at with even dog training skills because you, you know I took a little bit of a path to do some dog training with aggressive and reactive dogs um, conservation and education everything has come together and it's brought me to where I'm at now sitting talking with you conservation and coffee and and education and it's been great so far so I think that all the little steps I've taken to get to this place has been very helpful. And I'm glad that I finally found like my people, the GCF team has been great.
0: <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, the one thing that I, we always like to share is that um, a lot of people listening or that come to our events or talk to you at the education programs or whatever it is, there's this assumption that there's like only one way to become a wildlife conservationist, or there's only one way to become a zookeeper. And I think what's really important is we just continue to share that everybody has a different path and trail coming in. And that, like you said, it's not like you're making missteps along the way, as long as you're continually working towards it, because if you, I mean, you, you know, this when you're working in wildlife conservation, uh, you are going to wear multiple hats. So actually, the more hats you learn to wear along the road to mm-hmm. that end goal, the more useful you are. Because uh, conservation is drastically underfunded. It's uh, mm-hmm. very diverse in the skill set needs. Um, it's it can be a bit of Indiana Jones meets like MacGyver randomness, where you have to like shuffle all the time. Um, and it can also be very boring, uh, where we're doing the admin and the read shout and the daily stuff. So like working as a tech, going through college, uh, you know, learning to work with people in the education realm, that interpretive education style that, you know, um, is key. That
1: has become, yeah, so much more helpful than I ever thought it would, especially now that I'm given the opportunities to implement them with our education programs. Um, like you said, being flexible is key, not only in like your skills and at work, but like you as a person, you might be put in situations where you're not um, very comfortable and you have to be empathetic in order to really adjust to communicate to this person in a way that'll resonate. And for a lot of us, that's very uncomfortable, especially if you're in a place with culture shock, you know, you're, you're the minority now and you have to figure out a way to get through this language barrier, through charades, um, and empathy to, to really drive home this really hard or a message that's not always easy to digest. Um, I really like that challenge. I love the creativity. I love the obstacles that we see in the field sometimes, but with the team that we have, we usually get through those pretty easily. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's nice to see, I mean, depending on, on what we're going through, but it is nice to see the, the ways that people are willing to, to figure things out.
0: I think that's, I, I mean, it's so true. Like everybody, the team brings a wide set of skills to the table. And... um. I mean, sharing for the podcast, uh, the next several guests are going to be female conservationists. Um, So it's going to be fun to share because, again, there will be many different ways of how people are involved and so many things that I think are not thought of as being important. So, like, let's go back on the interpretive conservation messaging. Um, Education is pointless if you can't get the message or the impact across. And, you know, everybody's like, the old way of education is like, here's a boring piece of paper with bullet points or here's a PowerPoint presentation that isn't going to excite kids or here's really science dense information that's depressing as hell and let's create change with it. I mean, it doesn't work that way. It really doesn't work.
1: It doesn't. And I, I learned the hard way, you know, through education at the safari park, which is where I started. Um, I was all doom and gloom. Just like the animals are are (laughs) struggling. There's no habitats. It's awful. It's awful. As a conservationist, it's really hard not to get stuck in that. Um, And especially as a new educator, it's so hard not to focus just on that because you want people to understand that so much. But what I learned and these little tidbits are so important now. When I was in education, my mentor was listening to me give a doom and gloom tour. And he was like, if you bring him to the doom and gloom, that's fine. You just got to bring him back to the light, which he's totally right. You have to show people exactly what the issue is, because if they don't know about it, they can't care about it. If they can't care about it, they're not going to love it but you also have to show them an option. You know What I like about GCF is we don't go in um, and tell people that they're doing things wrong. We tell people where there are shortcomings and then we provide them an alternative or we support them in a way that is going to make them even better with their skills and strengthen all the things that um, you know, they may not have had the opportunity to exercise in the past. We're giving them you know, safer ways to go about things, more education to better themselves and know how to hold themselves in, in dangerous situations or, you know, in life. So yeah, it's just, it's just interesting. It is right. Yeah.
0: So, um, now that you've been with the team for a long time, um, we've, we started in the, uh, interpretive workbook realm, working with partners like painted dog research, trust and painted dog conservation, So those projects landed in Zambia and we use some of them in South Africa for those programs. Uh, Those are crossovers where community-based education and community-based conservation efforts, we needed to help our partners expand their their reach and make it digestible. Again, heavy science, right? So that was one that's interesting. Um, Of course, the big project that you launched with our partners in Vietnam is our giant wildlife demand reduction program or then i mean that's what we call it but it's a wildlife conservation immersion um, immersion program to help create wildlife ambassadors and wild warriors in an area that's heavily impacted for all wildlife conflicts, style crime and demand and 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 right so you've been on those ones And we'll come back to those in a second. But you've also now toured with us as instructors and learned and seen the complexity of training rangers with content that is educational, but it's operational. So there is a huge difference between talking to kids in classrooms and rangers with life-saving or operational training and then there's even a huge difference between the rangers in certain areas so you've got to yeah, experience that so much um, yeah, you
1: know you even with all that. these with all these like different different education um i guess like opportunities because like you said ranger training is going to be different than a classroom of middle schoolers There's a lot less filters out in the field. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But education is the common denominator. You know, whether you're teaching something super advanced and impractical or something in school that you want kids to learn foundationally, um, education is important. And like you said, my dog is snoring. Um, Like I said, with conservation or what you mentioned, if you can't at this point, like if you can't um, express what you're doing, if you can't communicate your work effectively, it kind of stops at you. Um, so being able to communicate to people freely is a is a really important skill to have. Seeing everything come together was really cool for me to like experience because I like knowing the whys. You know, I like knowing why are we teaching these kids things? Well, when they grow up and they see how important these animals are, maybe they'll be a ranger. Why is it important to teach rangers these things? Well, it's important for them to know how to protect themselves, it's important for them to know how to read animal behavior, it's important for them to know how to communicate. The list goes on. If we are able to do all of this and start from the bottom with our kids going into rangers and then so on and so forth into the community, we've really created some long resonating changes in our conservation field. And that's what we we aim to do. You know, conservation is not easy. And especially when it comes to long term projects, it seems almost impossible. But it's all about these little steps and like just breaking it down even for us in digestible ways so that we really can see that big goal that we want to see at the end without being burnt out or like losing our our path. Yeah. So seeing it um,
0: all together it's hard. Mm-hmm. that's it's really hard. It's funny because like uh so we'll use uh we'll use rangers in the south versus rangers in the north for this last South Africa tour. Um the units in the Eastern Cape are part of a GCF co-council which we've all formed over a decade now. So there's representatives like a quote knights of a round table but it's more for resources and so we have over a dozen different reserves, wildlife veterinarians, police, intel um, from the government of South Africa, private investigators and all these other stakeholders who are ecologists and, you know, running these different aspects coming together. So when GCF shows up, like everybody knows everybody, everybody's energized, everybody's excited. There's not so much of a language barrier in this area as well. And so when we make, we, when we do training, we're able to like very quickly make progress, like you can see it. So like those workshops are shorter, but more intense and more, um, integrated into different styles of training versus almost that cold call cold Turkey. We've worked with these partners before in the Northern side and we've worked in these units before, but almost all the Rangers are new because some of them were lost during COVID or a bunch of them were re were hired after COVID, which budgets came back. So there's only one or two senior members and we have a cultural barrier. We have a language barrier and we have an engagement barrier. Like they're all going like, why do I need to know how to put a tourniquet on or why should I know how to do wind packing? And there's this heavy icebreaker phase. That's like really uncomfortable, especially for the instructors. Um, sometimes some of us have to prep, pep talk each other because we're, we know it's going to be a challenge. We know it's going to be rough and we might not have slept well. We're on the road oh, tour. Right. Uh, <laughs> we're eating very limited <laughs> choices. We're for food. smashing
1: a car together. Yeah. yeah.
0: I- <laughs> and, and so then we show really up and then you, it's rough, right? The, the field is <laughs> rough and. Yeah. Then you show up and you have rangers who are just looking at you blindly like kind of just like why am I here and you're like you're right. damn it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then you turn that around and exactly. at the end you have them laughing and sharing stories and looking at the videos and the pictures um and that's where the impact comes and like uh what was that like for you to see specifically when you're like You're like in our huge home base where like we have the wildlife corridor, the habitat expansion, the rewilding, the ranger training, the annual base. We have our canines mounted. And then we went to like the rural bush back to some of our rural partners. And you're like, whoa, this is a little stiff. It's almost like,
1: yeah, it's almost like a time travel a little bit based off like like I, I would imagine that's how a lot of the ranger teams might start. It's just that some that are further away kind of are stuck. It feels like they're stuck there just a little bit. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that um, You know, we can't get through to them. We were just flexible with, like, okay, then let's start with an icebreaker. Let's make them do something. Let's make their bodies move. We're going to go straight to a casualty situation, make them do yeah. that. And then we'll talk about classroom stuff, um, which did shake it up, you know, for them a little bit, being able to, like, actually move and feel things. This is where the informal education comes in. You know, feeling the tourniquets, actually, like, acting things out together really did get them to loosen up and see, like, oh, there probably is a huge. Um, benefit to this and you know on that note we even had a ranger that was in our group who had just like sliced his hand open with a a machete earlier right yeah so that was like perfect it was like a perfect uh, scenario to practice with the whole team and I think that really drove the point home a little bit more but it was interesting to see how um, the team quickly I mean us we were able to quickly see that the team wasn't going to be the rangers weren't as engaged off the bat so it was just time to to switch it up a little bit. And that wasn't something that took very long for us to notice. I think we kind of predicted that beforehand. So yeah, it's, yeah, nice, to, yeah. it's nice to know that, but they were great. They were a lot of fun. And I think at the end they had a, a really fun time with all of their um, practicals that they were doing. I think they get a kick out of that. Yeah. Seeing all like the makeup and everything too.
0: What's interesting in that class setting, too, so this was in the Natal province of South Africa, so not the true north side of the country, so for all of our South African listeners, <laughs> don't slay me for the map. Um, but this is where Lauren joined us for the uh, Eastern Cape and the KZN wing of trainings, and then uh, a few of us moved to the actual like Sprite area, the Greater Kruger and the Kruger Overlap. And yet again, a, a total change of scenery and teams, but... What's always so interesting is—is is again, this is a really wide throw of people. It's—we uh, had men and women in this course that we're talking about specifically this time, and we had ages from like nineteen to probably fifty in the class setting, and there was uh, twenty-six total people. Yeah, it was attended. our largest group. Huh? Yeah. yeah. So you have these these complexities, um, but yeah, it's it's interesting to tie that in. So. Uh, let's jump backwards a bit. Our big program that we co launched with our friends at Wild Hand in Vietnam. Um, this program is multi dimensional in its wildlife education, conservation, and messaging, um, targeted for students in Hanoi, which is, again, one of the most, um, the highest demand cities for wildlife products and or legal activities from illegal pet trade to you name it. Um, So Lauren worked, you know, you worked on this big three month program launch that now has a whole life of its own and it's got other outside modules and it's the wild warriors program specifically that we are involved in. Um, Why don't you kind of start telling the base of that story and we can pick it along as we go. Cause it's, it's such a big story to yeah. kind of explain and it, it never it. translates over in any of our social media posts or any of our website stuff. It's so big. It's yeah. hard to explain.
1: Right. Right. And you're right. I mean, it's, it's its own, like monster. It's taken off on its own. It's great. Um, but as you guys might know, people that are listening, education isn't always sexy. I w- I've said that to you so many times, like education's not sexy. No one wants to hear about it, but and it's so, so important. So we yeah. have to make it. Yeah, we have to make it um, interesting. And this is where, again, informal education comes in. Um, Chow, who was the original president of Wild Hand, he um, decided to start Wild Warriors, which was this demand reduction project or wildlife conservation project out in Vietnam. And it was comprised of mostly, this volunteer group was comprised of mostly veterinarian, veterinarian students. So lots of people in the science world. Um, these veterinary students wanted to start an education project where it would run for about three months, reaching different ages of students and different um, groups of students that are close to areas with lots of wildlife. Um, these schools are specifically targeted because they usually push up against areas that have been you know, poached illegally for wildlife. The very first year that we started in Vietnam um, in 2019, we focused mostly on bear bile because the neighborhood that the the school was near to, adjacent to, was really big in bear bile. Um, For those of you that might not know what bear bile is, sun bears are often used um, in really horrible captive situations to basically extract their bile, Um, bile is used traditionally for lots of different things like fevers, um, depending on what cultural background you're talking to, they can be used for, you know, party drugs or whatever it might be, but out in Vietnam and Hanoi, there was a lot of kids that were privy to this and they simply didn't know that it was an issue because they were around it all the time. So this is where the education is important because once kids understand at, in school in a fun way, that's engaging, then hopefully they talk about it at home, um, And then the information just spreads from there. But we started in 2019. They focused mostly on middle school students. And then the next year, they decided to go even bigger, reach more students with um, middle schoolers and high schoolers. And now we're in university students. So it's been amazing to see how they're just continuously pushing um, for bigger and better. They've been highlighted by some of the Vietnam news channels, which is amazing. Chow, who was the president, has started his own like community outreach programs for kids in conservation, too. So he's getting bigger and being more inspired with what he can um, do and the people that he can reach. So at this moment, they're going into their fourth season and they're hoping to reach thousands of, of people in universities, in multiple universities. So they are unstoppable, this team, um, and we're in close contact with them. So they'll be reaching out to us very soon about more updates, which is exciting.
0: It's rad, and I think so. Like, there's, there's, there's more than just like the education in the classroom. There's the the field trip aspect. Um, there's the games that you guys played in the classrooms, like you said, that kind of interpretive. Um, but you guys, I remember hitting, especially the I mean, the second year expansion on that. Or sorry, no, that was still first year. Uh, was you you talk about the key animals at risk? And then you talk about other things like plastic pollution and illegal pet trade and the the like cub petting style things and they're getting a really well rounded education in wildlife conservation that's immediately in their area and then they are actually going out and meeting wildlife conservationists in their area too. So they did the um, they did the field trip to um, save Vietnam's wildlife. And then the national park and they have the kind of different methods of field trip trainings. And then there's like the, the lunch programs that are included in the buses and all these other things. So it's like, it makes it very easy for kids yes.
1: Yes. to
0: kind of be involved. And so mm-hmm. the retention was the retention each year was what was crazy was yeah. there was like students from the years prior becoming mentors and guest teachers or guest hosts if you will for the next program um what do you how does it feel like i mean in in one aspect to see it kind of like really start to run like that because it's a lot of work it takes so much back admin time before you even see the project you know quote come to life
1: yeah absolutely i i mean just seeing the way their team worked and it's nice seeing them on the ground and actually being part of their like process when they're first starting up seeing their brainstorming in the beginning and how things have shifted from, you know, being very science-y students and and then now into, like, informal educators where they're playing a lot of games with students. I mean, most of our presentations were through games and interactions so that kids would have more tactile and kinesthetic um, opportunities to really drive the point home. Um, These people have, like, the whole Wild Hand crew has become so good at honing in their skills as teachers, too. The way they interact with students through presentations, they even do, like, Um, photo exhibitions for kids. They do lots of skits with the kids in order for them to understand the importance of everything. Um, It is really cool to see that I have had a little bit of a part into inspiring these people to want to communicate and be educators. Um, Another thing that I really enjoy about the program is the alternatives that they, they provide for kids. Like you had mentioned, um, or I had mentioned earlier, it's important to give kids an alternative or people an alternative if you're going to tell them that what they're doing might not be appropriate. We, in the first year, brought a bunch of these like synthetic, um, I guess, alternatives to bare bile, and it was made out of herbs from a local community or from a local organization that we gave to kids as an alternative for using bare bile. So it's not only that we're telling them not to use it, we're providing them with something else and then explaining to them what the difference is, what the impact is, um, and seeing you know, kids love to, to bring things home too, for show and tell. So those little pieces were really, um, important in tying in the whole community and involving other organizations into our efforts. Um, and then our creativity too.
0: So it's, so there's a couple really important notes in, uh, this kind of crossover. So in specifically the poaching and the wildlife demand world, um, two parties Two, I should say, two overarching communities get blamed, and they get blamed in the villain tone instead of the human lens, if you will. So poachers become this big lens that people blame, and it's this whole overarching thing that people are, you know, they're villainized. And yes, there are it's very. Easy to
1: hate.
0: Yeah, it is. And there are really dangerous poachers, but there are those who are either. Trying to survive, or they're coerced into it. And uh, those as rangers working on the ground at, you know, capturing these suspects and whatnot, um, it's not their job to be the judge and the executioner. It's their job to protect the wildlife. They're there to actually save lives, not take lives. So there's one miscommunication on that side. And then the other side, the demand market gets blamed all the time for how could they do this right and so the the big message is is like you said there are a lot of people who are unaware that it has an impact they've either been sold a story that sounds good or told a different version or they're absolutely desperate to save a loved one um, and then in the same big throw of you know this category the quote demand market there are, are people who are openly aware of what's going on and they're just bad players but it's not something that you get. You have to lump any, everybody into. And this is a big education takeaway is if you attack somebody in their own home setting with your outside views, you're never going to get across to them the change that you hope to see. But if you can, like you said, understand why they're doing it and understand how it's happening and try to make an alternative method come through or help them understand the negative impact of that, almost in almost every incident you have a large change happen um, there have been several studies specifically under like uh, traffic the organization that is uh, wWf funded um, about users not actually knowing the real story um, about rhino horn and pangolin and some of the other aspects thinking that uh you know rhinos are not killed for their horns or it doesn't hurt them and all these other things all the way to, of course, people knowing what is actually happening. Um, What is it like? What was it actually, what was it like when you went to Vietnam and actually were working with the team and kind of saw the kids, I mean, they're younger kids, but saw them interact with these different pretty big topics. Um, You know, I'm sure everybody listening is kind of like oh well it's easy you show them the impact they change but like they're also they're they're young adults they're not true adults like what was that like kind of delivering that message and seeing that and then kind of coming back out of that and then getting hit at like a farmer's market or a gcf gala and people are like speaking like those people like they're villains
1: right right yeah you know what i'm gonna before i even touch on that I'm going to give you a more like personal experience that I had actually with a family member of mine when I was creating this presentation for Wild Hand oh, for yeah. Wild Warriors. Um, I was putting together a presentation on my computer, big screen. I had a, a pangolin picture up, and that was like pretty much the, the only thing that was up on my screen. Um, I had my grandpa walk in behind me, and he saw a picture of the pangolin, and he just goes, Oh, you know, the scales are really good for fevers. Uh, totally unsolicited. And it was just like that immediate, like, I just felt my body like shut down for a second because I was like, it's so close to home. It's my- someone that I love that clearly wouldn't do anything malicious. I wouldn't, I would put my life on that, but he clearly doesn't know because he said it just so like, hey, if matter of fact, those skills, did you know, help with fevers? And then I asked him to explain to me like, well, how do you use them? Because I wanted to know like, what has he been exposed to? And he was like, well, it's like usually a powder. And then you just like put it in your tea or you like rub it on yourself and it gets cool. Um, so we had a whole conversation about what penguin scale is, how it's keratin and all these like misunderstandings. He's coming from uh, like a place in time where traditional medicine was very popular. I mean, he used to live in Southeast Asia for most of his life. So that's probably what he was more exposed to than anything else. He did not have an education like this. That's for sure. Um, this is probably the first time he's ever heard anything different than use this for medicine. And that was like the biggest that was a really hard um, conversation for me to have because it was just so close and you had to stay calm and like empathetic. It's not easy. It's very uncomfortable. Um, And that's kind of, you know, with kids, they don't have as much of a background with these resources yet. So it's not as intense. A lot of it is just like, they are privy to these things and they might not even know that they're bad, but seeing kids like light up, you almost see like a light bulb go off in their eyes when you finally get to a point that they can resonate with or understand. And it doesn't have to be the, the the biggest like message behind bear bile. It just has to like a little bit of a trigger of inspiration for like that animal or caring for this cause is enough to really, you know, spark that, spark that um, passion in the kid. What was telling for us at the end of these programs of three months is that we had kids write um, their signature basically on a pledge saying like they would Hope they would hope to carry on being conservationists. They're going to pass on being ambassadors to their parents. Um, that was a, a really good testament for us to quantify how important these things were. I know it's just a signature on paper, but these kids had a lot of. They had a lot of opportunities to interact, um, not only with like plays and skits and games and presentations, but they also got to see these things themselves in those field trips, and that's really what brought things full circle for these kids. Um, we interviewed some at the end and I think some were especially grateful to have school on a Sunday, um, because they got to go outside, you know, it was not normal school. So if anything, we even made their normal school more fun. (laughs) It's just like making people, you know, enjoy school more and enjoy education and see all the passion that they should have for the animals that live nearby. It's about, you know, inspiring them to care in in any which way. So so it is cool. Yeah. It's cool to uh... see like...
0: Go ahead. ahead. Sorry.
1: No, I feel like I I almost have, especially with my grandpa making that comment, I almost have like a personal goal to like try to hit as many people as possible with education and like show them, you know, all the other perspectives because it's, I mean, it's just so it's so important and so close to home for me. So I feel like it's almost my duty to reverse as much as I can.
0: So I love the 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 family example there. So um, a lot of folks are not aware that the U.S. It is up in the top five countries for illegal wildlife products. And it's not just, quote, these other places far away with people who are, quote, different from us. It doesn't, that's not how it works. Um, It's
1: not. And like having lived in Singapore, um, I traveled a lot through Southeast Asia and seeing these wildlife products is very common. And it might not be a rhino horn, but you'll see like snake wine, you know, with endangered reptiles. It's like Everything. Um, and it's, it just proves even more that it's just a cultural, it's a cultural thing. Um, it's a big monster that we really have to, that we're up against right now, but things are changing with social media and with like the way that we can communicate like this, like from afar and have people listening. That's important. Um, it might feel small, but with all these like little things that we do, it's going to make a big difference. So
0: yeah. I will never and, and you have the, you have the ability now to, with social media and you know, the kind of the integration of methods have familiar ambassadors from within their own communities who become like the champions or torch runners. And it's really important because again, you're not trying, it kind of reminds me of like almost cigarette ads in the U S like you still have people in the U S who are adamant that cigarettes don't do anything to you. And you're like, okay, there's a ridiculous amount of information to prove you wrong. And then someone's like, yeah, well my grandma smoked until she was 152 and she's not, you know, she didn't have black lungs. You're like, okay. You know? Um, and then, then obviously the majority of us are like, yeah, that's not, that's not good for you. Uh, the other thing that I think is funny is like another campaign that amazingly got so much flack in the U S and it's st- actually still does in some other places uh, is seatbelts. Uh, introducing seatbelts was like almost like a a waging of a cultural war where people are like, you're trying to take away my freedoms in the United States and trying to help people be more safe in the, you know, accident realm with the statistical proof that it's helping. You still have people who are arguing against it. Like, nope, seatbelts actually killed this person. You're like, okay. Um, Every coach, every culture has a, Faux pas in that realm, like there is something like that. Uh, Absolutely, I
1: think like when I go into a classroom, I'm not only trying to like inspire people about like that animal or the cause and whatever our focus is, but I want these kids to think critically. Yeah. I want these people to think critically. That is my underlying focus um, when I approach somebody. Uh, it's not just giving them the answer. You know, we have these phones where we can just like look up answers right away, but it really strips people's potential to think critically. And that is hugely a problem in everything. Like the thing. Yeah. that alone. It's just thinking critically. Think critically. Yes, maybe it wasn't great in one situation. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't wear a seatbelt ever. Um, think critically about what the, the root of the issue is and then go from there.
0: That's, I, I, I so important. agree. <laughs> and also, I think, so it's human nature to simplify things so that we can translate uh-huh. it and share it. But mm-hmm. also almost everything we're dealing in is is a human based problem or cause or effect and none of that Absolutely. is simple in the bigger picture. Uh-huh. No. So understanding that like in 3D. the realm, that's true. I, no that's one not- f- change is one of the hardest things for people in general.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Even if it's something that's not very big, we understand that it's important to understand that as a human, it's not easy for people to change, but that's why we have to make conservation easy enough. We have to make those paths easy enough. Right. Um, and same with like the way we operate. The team that you see, the team that you're listening to, these are the people that go out. We keep it simple. These are the people. We bring it out. We bring it in. Um, We'll help, you know, create that network. But I think that's uh, very important to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, so what would you say was your favorite moment out of the Wild Hand Project stuff that you've oh, seen over the years?
1: My favorite thing. Oh, man. Um actually one of the favorites so going out in the field you know it's not glamorous all the time no not at all (laughs) the funniest funniest thing ever so i wasn't we none of our team members had been out to vietnam i was the first one going out there with this uh group with chow and wild hands and he had picked me up from the airport on a motorbike uh which is like normal totally normal for southeast asia but i had suitcases Okay, so we had to, this is like the way, this is the way that we transported the entire time with the suitcase, like in between our, ourselves, it was very safe. Um, we had to continue working this way through the entirety of the few weeks we were together. So when we, I decided to like create this giant box that looks like the same dimensions of a bear, a bear cage, a sun bear cage, which is fairly big, but big for a human, not big for a bear. Um, so we had this giant box that I had created with like little tube wires coming out of it to simulate what bear bile would look like with a bear sketched on it. And then I remember we had to transport it on a motorcycle.
0: <laughs>
1: so we had to wear it. I wore it over my body <laughs> on a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't see anything. Um, that was pretty hilarious. I'll have to send videos of that to you. But a couple of us had to like change wearing it because it was just so hot and heavy. Um, and we would drive to the school in the middle of like nowhere cuz these schools are rural so it was fun to uh, be creative with the team and really see nothing nothing held them down they were super positive the whole time and seeing that in a team is important in making me feel good about like letting them go and run and they have been great and positive and have run with it for 4 years so they are they're on doing it doing great it. Right. yeah but that was probably one of the funniest mm-hmm. like most enjoyable little like Easy lighthearted moments of like, this is what we do because we're trying to be creative, we're trying to make it fun. Uh, we're just gonna put this box on our head and go. The
0: the the, the, That is like so field conservation in a nutshell. I mean everything (laughs) you plan for everything and then you just get completely freight trained by the most basic thing in the day. You're like, really? But Um, it's so it's
1: comedic relief. If anything, we probably educated hundreds of people on the way to school with that box.
0: Oh yeah,
1: sparked curiosity.
0: (laughs) Um, I mean, this just brings me back to like uh, the ranger training trip you were on with us just recently, and the Mm -hmm. uh, power going out, (laughs) and the fuse box being in a locked garage that we couldn't access, (laughs) and we couldn't cook dinner or do anything. You know, because I feel like we
1: should also do a side co- podcast of just like the things that happen in the field. That oh, would be pretty
0: fun. You know, we actually share them on this podcast because there's so many dang curveballs. Yeah, this, too many. <laughs> every every trip. So, like, let's see. This last ranger training trip, it was that was like the start of the. Oh, actually, no, the start was getting the riddle. We didn't kind of finish that long. part. Yeah. Yes. So the so I'll go back to the house power. We are exhausted. Um, it was either the first or the second day we were starting the training segments, and there's a lot of load shedding or power cuts in South Africa. This part is planned, and we know this. We deal with it all the time, which usually it interrupts your Wi-Fi and your cooking and your showers and your heated water and all this other stuff. Well, this Airbnb that we were all using as a home base for a couple weeks um they had a fuse panel inside the garage which is detached from the house and it was locked from the inside of the garage and we're trying to get a hold of the airbnb host, and he's telling me to use a garage door opener which uh powers out so it's not working and then the keys (laughs) there's no key that can unlock the special deadbolt that someone did But there's a million keys but there's a million keys there's like (laughs) 40 freaking keys in this house (laughs) And they're all hung all over the place. And this guy who owns Airbnb is up in Johannesburg. And he's telling me, yeah, find this kind of key, which had a name on it, which there's like five of those keys in multiple locations and eventually had to get a locksmith crew out, which was not a locksmith crew. It was like the podunk security company that broke the frame of the glass window, climbed which you in,
1: done.
0: which we could have done climbed into there he opens the deadbolt from the inside of the garage which none of us could access and then it's like raining that night and there's all sorts of other stuff going on and i was just like oh my god this is so
1: this, good.
0: this is the field and then guys
1: we got so creative though trying to get through that house so oh we did Continue.
0: so yeah so that was just like one of the hiccups but the the first the first hiccup that really set the tone for the amount of headaches that were going to be delivered by the field gods on that trip was when the car showed up and it was too small. And then the next car showed up and I was all excited. Cause I had gone through like the extra headache of like, send me a picture. I want a picture before we get there. Cause we we're going to be, we're going from the bush to like the rural bush and we're supposed to have a Toyota Hilux with a shell so we can put our training equipment back there easily. Walk up to that truck the guy is so excited to show me, and I'm all excited, too. I'm like, oh, thank God. It's the 4x4 edition. It's lifted. It's, like, trail ready. There's four of us traveling together. We have space. We like there's blue
1: balls for you, Mike.
0: Oh, dude, board. I was so stoked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then the dude from the rental car company puts the key in the back of the shell to load our luggage for us, and just, it cracks in half. It breaks. It, like, turns into dust. It, yeah.
1: It's away. That...
0: <laughs> and I literally just flat pan started laughing like fuck this like you cannot be serious so close, but so far and we were supposed to have a meeting within or i was supposed to have a meeting within an hour of that time frame and this is killing time and then we had to drive off site to get a van and then the van didn't have a freaking scanning oh, hub bad. the toll pass <laughs> disc and i was like oh my god god this is just getting yeah. i know i got i got so pissed at one point i just like i walked away because the guy was like asking me dumb questions was like please stop asking me questions you guys have fucked this up so bad i just need to walk away so i don't take this out on you because like <laughs> i know it's not your fault but you're pissing me off like you need to stop
1: <laughs> emotions so, run real high when you're tired
0: yeah <laughs> that's for no sure. sleep multiple flights and then i was like oh my god and then um you had a couple unfun champion moments you got you had allergic reaction and you got like food poisoning too
1: yeah. <laughs> so glamorous <laughs> i woke up one morning i had like a fat lip i was like what is happening i did nothing but i guess this is what we're dealing with today and then i had food poisoning one night which i did to myself which was not fun um so with low shedding be careful when uh, you time when you cook because <laughs> that might affect your health the next day i think <laughs> yeah. the funniest thing <laughs> careful i think the funniest thing was um and now we're going on a tangent but when lambert shot his uh gun what was that what oh was that the... gun <laughs> <laughs> when he shot that little paint gun and like gassed us out by so, accident
0: in uh, so here's a time warp to bring it into context so in 2017 um we started working with Mignani private game reserve and we have, now we have a canine unit there with our canines Rolo and Thor and Lambert is the APU manager. So we were back there on a cycle for training and we had bought that team non-lethal uh, paintball guns with mace pepper balls or pepper, pepper, pepper ball, pepper balls, whatever they are. And he was all excited because we were going to use him in the training demonstration and he brings him outside. We are outside and we're very well spread apart. And he accidentally shoots one off and it blows up on the wall. And it's about maybe 20 feet from me where I'm doing like admin while Chris Larson, our medic is training and Natasha's running photography on the side and Lauren's helping with Chris. And it's all happens in a flash of a second. And then like all of us, are gasping and our eyes are running and our nose are going and like, just nonstop.
1: <laughs> just teaching medical training with tourniquets coughing. You yeah. just hear all our videos coughing and gagging.
0: It went to it's like crazy. a mustard gas immersion course for that, like or you know, like a riot style, but the, it, it lasted for a couple hours. Too.
1: <laughs> Guys, it was good. It was good entertainment.
0: Oh, there's so many things. That was a, that was a good one. I, 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 I did not play. forget about that one, but that, that, that is like just the daily delivery of things that happens all the time. Like
1: mm-hmm. but <laughs> everything smokes. was so smooth. we were ready to get started with medical training and then, pfft.
0: and there then go. now we've added an element of chaos, yeah. um, dude. So much yeah. fun. Uh, Guys, it's
1: fun. Unpredictable things are fun. It's always fun being flexible. And if you have that, you know, if that's easy for your personality type, being flexible and going on the road and being adventurous, come out with us. Yeah, <laughs> the
0: there is no shortage <laughs> of adventure on these trips i'll tell you no. that uh, yeah and we like to say is uh the like the advanced field instructors crew and some of our like our deployable teams that we use in the kind of more dangerous areas south africa is quote africa light by description of our own south african team members so it's really funny because when you think that that's challenging and that's following curveballs wait until you go into Mozambique or you go into Zambia or Zimbabwe all of a sudden it just is like, okay, this is a different caliber of chaos. And I am, we are dealing with something else now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm unprepared.
0: Uh, Yeah. Okay.
1: We we, we got into it. That was
0: good. Yeah. I mean, so let's, I guess let's talk about eco tours then. So you've also been with Jeff, um, one -hmm. of our board of directors, on the guest led eco tours at the lodge, which is not field life. No, yeah, I've seen it in a different
1: perspective now. No, completely different. So for eco tours, (laughs) for those of you that rather have uh, a more controlled potentially uh, outing with us, eco tours are great. Um, They can be what, seven days long or so is what we're doing.
0: seven
1: Um, eight to 14 people, depending. And, you know, you stay at one of our reserves. But it's beautiful. If you're talking about like five star, like here in the States, it's like that. Um, Nice pool, at least where I stayed at the Homestead Lodge. You know, you have game drives every day, three course meals, like breakfast, lunch and dinner. You get quite um, hefty after those. It's a lot of fun and really relaxing. And like we always invite you guys on like procedures and stuff if there are things going on. So it's a little less adventure dirty. Um, but really fun. So if you're interested in getting a little bit of, uh, slow introduction into Africa and enjoying yourself like that on vacation, eco tours are the way to go. Um, the complete opposite for (laughs) the complete opposite for, yeah. And (laughs) that's it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So like eco tours, you're going to be living in the lodge setting. You're going to have a host the whole time. Like, like Lauren said, you're going to have food. There's going to be a cultural engagement. Um, Usually it's a BOMA night with a, a presentation and a dance and song. There's You're going to visit the mounted unit. You're going to see our canines with a demonstration, um, probably do a drone demonstration, an ops room, an APU-based visit as well. Um, it's always hopeful for a wildlife procedure, but that is up to the vets, the elements, and the animals themselves. So that can be a hard thing to weave in sometimes. And the best part is, is it actually is fundraising for our efforts. So you are Mm -hmm. enjoying yourself while actually helping us maintain those same efforts. So your trips are going towards those community pillars of community-based conservation, our ranger teams, and our wildlife management programs. um, I'm going to emphasize
1: even more that you can't really do this anywhere else. (laughs) So if you you want like a well if you want like a really good immersive tour where you get to see a little bit of what we do, but not have to be living in that and, and all that stuff, this is a good way to dip your toes into it before you decide to like jump full fledged into a field tour or whatever. But yeah, it's a good so, um, overall for what we do.
0: Cause it's definitely different than what's coming. So, um, myself and uh, Wesley Fisher, one of the other, uh, canine instructors, we're going to be moving around Southern Africa and this is like, the full band-aid off scenario so for those who are really looking to get their hands dirty or really want to get hands-on experience uh you'll be traveling alongside us in bush camps and we're going to be in the greater kruger region but then wesley and i are going to move on into mozambique and um that would definitely not be this lodge life so if you're applying for those things um if you're interested in these kinds of outings, you can always reach out to us on the website, the social media pages, or directly if you have our email addresses. Um, And like Lauren said, we can set this up for groups. But if you're looking to break into conservation, the one thing that's really important is just choose baby steps and take action. Don't wait. Um, Again, there is no one way and only this way to do it. The more times you visit the field, the more times, the more things you'll realize you can do that benefit conservation, that are involved. Um, You don't have to be a PhD. You don't have to be an animal expert. You don't have to be Rambo 2.0 and be this crazy jocked up version of a human. Um, There are many different platforms to be involved. Um, And I think that's what the fun is when you come out to the field. You get to see all those different variables and realize how many things are going into all of this or Um,
1: learn what you like uh, and don't like you know there might be things that you're not crazy about like that you might have thought you would have liked before but yeah I think those real life applications are going to help people definitely figure out their niche Uh, I would say just focus on your passion wherever there's a passion there's a way Uh, like like I said at the very beginning of our podcast I started in veterinary field and just like went through all these obstacles and finally found myself here. Um, but there's lots of different options. And I think GCF is a really good resource to help get you in there, whether, whether you want to just come volunteer with us here in the States or you want to go out to the field, just getting into this network of people is going to be very helpful.
0: Lauren, what from your perspective and from your line into conservation, what are some of your suggestions about getting into the field, uh, in any variety of ways and what have you found that helps has helped keep you going? Because it is a very challenging, everything's very challenging about conservation, honestly. Um, like what, what has kept you motivated and what kind of kept you on your path and what would you say to someone who came to you and said, I want to do this, but I don't know how to get there.
1: Yeah. Um, good question. I, I would say, I think the easiest way to see if it, if an organization is something that fits with you, is try volunteering somewhere, doing easy things first with a crew, um, whether it's our crew or another nonprofit, volunteering with them a little bit and seeing if that team really meshes and communicates in the way that you like is going to be a good indicating factor, as if it, a good indicating factor into if that team is going to be good for you, and I think that is, is a really important thing to pay attention to. Um, It might seem small, but these people you're going to be communicating with all the time and sometimes in tough situations. So feeling good about the team you're with, um, feeling good about the cause and the projects that they do is really important. I think you know now, Mike, that I go a lot off feeling. If I don't feel like Mm a place is good for me, I'll leave. Um, That's really important. So as long as you feel happy and you feel like the cause is right and you feel like you have a purpose in it, keep going with that nonprofit or keep going with that organization or even that job. This is a life like coaching now, um, but go off your gut. I think that's the the number one thing. Um, this group of people I found is the easiest to mu- communicate with, and maybe I'm biased because we kind of worked in the same orbits as each other, which gave us a different, you know, you know, foot up. But I find that these people I bond to the easiest. So that's what's been easiest for me. If you were interested in GCF, I'm happy to talk to you through it. I made a promise to myself that if anyone ever needed help in conservation or animal the animal world, I'd be there to help them. Um, so please feel free to chit chat and I'd be happy to push you in, in a direction that fits for you.
0: Awesome. So I think, I mean, that's, that's a big thing that many of our team members share as an ethos is, um, our team likes to be very open and helpful. Um, and we'll be honest too. we, We, you know, we can't, snap our fingers and make things possible, but we will help get you on your way to where you want to be. Um, <clears throat> I think the space for conservation has been fun. I Our team has been a major trend setter and rule breaker of quote, the old ways. Um, and it's been fun to do that in many ways. It's obviously very challenging and you hit it full force sometimes, but um, I think it's important to, be self-aware that if you feel like you're not part of conservation, that you still have a chance and opportunity. And if that's your goal, fight for it. Go for it. Um, and education is one that is actually very easy to duplicate in some aspects. So if you are looking to reach out and have a presentation, have a conversation, anything like that, Lauren is going to be your point of contact for that kind of uh, detail within the organization. Uh, schools to colleges, you name it, we have programs, we have education books, we have education presentations, and we can even adapt this to you know corporate world in some aspects because um, education takes many shapes and forms and we are flexible for all those different aspects of life. Um, and it is really important because if we can communicate these issues properly, we can properly impact the change and then we're making progress. Um, and that's important because well, it's important to us because we obviously care about what's going on. Um, all right. I'm going to do another tangent.
1: Okay. My favorite. What
0: was your favorite South oh. African food?
1: Oh man. Okay. Now I have to think back. Okay. So full disclosure, I ate more meat on this trip than I think <laughs> I have in my entire life.
0: Yeah. South Africa <laughs> so kind of brutal for that.
1: Yeah. um, So usually when I'm at home, guys, I don't really eat that much red meat. And that's just based off, I guess, like preference. I just don't really buy that much. So it's, I tried a lot of new foods and that's why it's hard for me to pick what I thought would be the favorite. Um, I mean, I, you know, what's actually really surprising the lamb curry, Mm, that That was really good. Yeah. And that is definitely not something that I would have like bought at home, but you know, beggars can't be choosers when you're out there eating you're just like okay i'll try it you might like it and i did so lamb curry i think that was like one that i can think of that was like different
0: so that brings up a really good uh field tangent um I, i hate to say things are not possible or impossible but um food is extremely limited in many of these places and a lot of times you're culturally offered things and so you Mm -hmm. need to be respectful and engage Mm -hmm. the lamb wasn't the in cultural engagement it was like the last option food type thing that was also like something we were told we had to try Mm -hmm. and that was crazy good um did you have any fun moments in vietnam with food where because i know like the food is so good in vietnam too so like (laughs) i'm sure you're having a wide throw of things that side like what was food like when you were in vietnam for I, the field tour? i
1: love street food Same. i love street food and i think it's because i've been lucky enough not to get sick from street food <laughs> <Not on wood. laughs> i make myself sick when i cook apparently um i we had like pho on the side of the road and i know it sounds disgusting to some people but it is the best those like tiny little carts um if it looks clean enough and you're just on your way usually they're Great. So that was amazing because I wasn't expecting to have fun at like 10 at night. And we just like pulled up to some tiny little cart and just ate fun on the side of the road. Um, of course, when you see fun stuff in these rural areas, it's going to have like chicken feet and everything in it too. That's not something that scares me. That's something that my family eats as well. But I know it can be culture shock for some people. Um, so seeing like that real like rural cooking too was nice to see as a welcome to Vietnam right when I arrived. But the food was amazing. And so cheap. The food is so cheap.
0: Oh gosh! That's what yeah, I like when traveling. That b- remind me of the story of when uh, the Robert, co-host of the show and uh, GCF field journalist, <laughs> was with me in uh, rural Sumatra, and there's chicken feet dangling that are fried. And I'm like, Robert, you hungry? He's like, not anymore. I'm like, come on, Robert. <laughs> did he
1: try it? You should have tried
0: he, it. He did not. I jumped in. I mean, obviously, again, it was the only option, and. We hadn't eaten i think the entire day um but robert's face was like i'm gonna die i'm like you're not gonna die you're gonna be fine <laughs> uh, yeah but i think that comes with that the the adventure factor too is uh obviously mm-hmm. people are eating it and surviving in all these other places
1: yeah and if you and, see it everywhere yeah. it's probably better than you think just yeah. try it yeah. nothing bad is gonna happen
0: I live by one rule when traveling and that's live like a local for especially the food. Because if you try to live like a foreigner in the food, you're more likely to Mm -hmm. get sick.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. And it's fun, you know, traveling as a local anyway. And like you're coming out, you're coming from a different place anyway. You might as well just immerse in their lifestyle. You might see things that you may have never been able to be exposed to before. So, Oh
0: yeah. Big time. mm -hmm.
1: I think it's important for everybody to like, to be able to travel and get this opportunity. It doesn't have to be anywhere far, but being a minority at some point, I think is very important to see that perspective. So,
0: oh yeah, that's an yeah. eye opener and some change right there. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it is. What are some of the things you're looking forward to? You're going to be on the GCF annual Rainier training course, yeah. then, a uh, a second launched field deployment with Chris running medical training programs. Um, that's going to be pretty exciting that's coming up here april may 2024 it's gonna be crazy i'm excited
1: to do this moulage to like get my hands in that again <laughs> um moulage for those of you that might not be as uh exposed to it's basically like silicon movie art it's like uh basically doing prosthetics and stuff on people during these um drills out in the field that was a lot of fun and really cool to to practice but it's not like i practice that every day when i'm at home so I have to go out to Africa with Chris um, to actually put those into play. But yeah, I think that'll be fun to actually like do all those things again that I had just learned this past trip.
0: Yeah. It's, it'll be cool to see. It's a, a different kind of chaos uh, when we're doing the annual ranger training programs versus the field training programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will be quote instructor Mike. So I have to put my alter ego on to, Mike. To, to change, to, yeah, to chase yeah. the recruits around. Um, Amazing. But it's also fun because we're we're in one place because and there's less of the chaos in that aspect. So um, All right. we're focused. So that's on the horizon. And then a couple more events coming out down the line. Outside of that, if you guys want to reach out, I highly suggest getting in touch with us via the social media channels, the website, or come out to an event if you can. Um, if you'd like to host an event as well or you'd like to set up an education program or have an education visit, You can always get in touch with us to get in touch with lauren and we can make that program happen and in the meantime uh we have a couple more episodes coming out they're going to be kind of on and off so i appreciate everybody sticking around for the podcast uh it's not easy to do the podcast episodes while in the field uh, especially with no internet and uh, no clean audio Uh, so we try to weave them between other things but lauren thanks for thanks for being on the team thanks for coming on today and uh, everybody thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode of coffee and conservation
1: all right catch you on the flippity flip